Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 29th, 2021. It's been quite a week, as it always is quite a week these days. Uh, earlier this week, I interviewed um, Pamela Paul, the book editor of the New York Times Book Review, uh, and I mistakenly called the New York Times the old lady. I confused it with Juventus, the uh, Italian football club from Turin, and she, of course, in good New York Times fashion, corrected me sharply, reminding me that the New York Times is known as the gray lady, looking at Perhaps we might call the New York Times the old gray lady this morning. The news is very, very gray. It's very old, very dark. Um, we have Paul Crudman, of course, always gray. He has a brand, I guess, associated with grayness, reminding us that we're in the midst of a terrible environmental crisis. The planet is might be on its last legs. We've got this UN Climate Summit coming up at the weekend. Um, the Democrats are pushing to secure policies that Biden can promote. But of course, the Democrats themselves are divided unnaturally, it seems. Uh, and Joe Manchin is holding them up. That's part of the problem. Um, there's a piece in the New York Times today about what, did, what we did the last time we broke America. Uh, the piece by John Grinspan, uh, the curator of political history at the Smithsonian, writes, what happened to normal politics? I've spent the last five years commuting between two centuries trying to find out. It's toxic. America is toxic. And the, the old gray lady reports on it today. Um, they report about Texas uh, being a state as, which has turned citizen against citizen over abortion. Uh, they write about the Supreme Court being Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court, again, a, a rather toxic court or a court with toxic repercussions. David Brooks, uh, a moderate conservative, writes about the toxicity of the American left and self-isolation. Uh, John McQuarter, another of their columnists, write about the toxicity of our conversation or perhaps lack of conversation about race and the intolerance particularly of uh, progressives on race. Uh, and they also write about Adam Kinzinger, the Republican Trump critic who apparently won't seek re-election in the House. Again, surprise, surprise. The toxicity on the right when it comes to critics of Donald Trump is just as toxic, I guess, as the toxicity on the left. So is there any way out of this toxic politics, this uh, end of coherent conversation? Uh, there is a way out, at least according to my guest today, who has a new book out appropriately called uh, The Way Out, uh, The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. It's by Peter T. Coleman. He's a professor uh, at Columbia University um, in Uptown uh, Manhattan, and he is appropriately joining me from uh, 
from the Upper West Side uh, in New York City. Uh, Peter, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. Smile for me because uh, you are suggesting a way out. The old gray lady doesn't suggest one. Um, how bad is the situation in America when it comes to this, what you call in the, as the subtitle in the book, this toxic polarization? Well, uh, there are historians like John Meacham that are comparing the political climate today to the 1850s in America, right before the US Civil War. Um, Doris Kearns Goodwin as well has made that reference. So, and that's because of parallel conditions, the, you know, the, the distrust in government in general, but the disputed election, the sort of a secessionist movement, um, and just really the vitriol uh, across both sides and a major disinformation campaign. So those factors parallel what was happening before the last U.S. Civil War. Um, and, you know, January 6th was a precursor to that. We've seen the, the year after uh, um, Barack Obama was elected to office, uh, hate groups in America grew by 755%. And in the four years under Donald Trump, that number doubled again to you know 55% more hate groups than previously. So their hate is a huge industry. It's a, a magnet and attractor for many Americans, particularly white males. Um, but yeah, this is a bad time. I mean, I, again, the reason I talk about toxic polarization is that it's, it's not typical political polarization, which is fine. In a two-party system, you want to have Passion. So you are okay with the polarization, the debate, say, between Manchin and the rest of the Democratic Party over uh, over how much money should go into the, um, the, the, the budget bill for, for the environment? Is that politics as usual? That's acceptable? Well, it is. It is, uh, except, of course, that's happening in, in, a, in a broader context. Um, and the importance, you know, the, the slim uh, difference between parties and the capacity to pass legislation um, is relatively new. There used to be more bipartisanship. And, there, and we are yeah. at an all time. Preparing for this um, show, Peter, I was thinking, um, especially on this abortion law, yeah. stuff uh, in Texas, according to the Times, or at least for, uh, an op-ed in it, has turned citizen against citizen. Yeah. Isn't the problem that both sides, particularly with a, an issue like abortion, are in, entirely intolerant, entirely unwilling to acknowledge that there is any kind of moral truth outside their own? Well, that's not always the case. So I start the book actually with a case a story of uh, Boston, uh, um, Massachusetts in the 1990s, and what happened there at that time. Yeah, it's the abortion, uh, for people watching, it's the abortion dialogues in Greater Boston. So you might say something about that. Exactly, yeah. And it was a time when there were, were extreme differences and, and harsh rhetoric from both camps, uh, and it was a very difficult time, really 80s and 90s in Boston, Boston is a highly Catholic city, 36% Catholic. Um, and then in 1994, there was a horrific shooting that took place in uh, Planned Parenthood and other women's clinics in the Brookline area of Boston. And it really ruptured that time, that moment. And 
what did happen that, at that time in response to that violence is that, you know, the, the governor, the archbishop, the mayor all called for sort of talks. Um, and there was a temporary kind of move to sort of securitize all these clinics. But more importantly, what happened is that there was a, uh, a dialogue that, that commenced between three pro-life and three pro-choice leaders in secret, in quiet, well-facilitated, uh, initially for a month, it went, it went further for about a year of these secret dialogues. And that year turned into five and a half years of these women talking to each other about this issue that is an extremely divisive issue, but also of uh, becoming close to one another and respecting each other and learning the, that each other were decent people and kind people and trying to serve the greater good. So there are conditions where you, even under such issues that uh, are so highly divisive, people can agree to disagree and not vilify, you know, and demonize the other side, which is what we tend to do very quickly today. Peter, before we get to the way out, um, what's the way in? How, how do you explain this? How we've got to this toxic polarization? We've done lots of shows on social media. Certainly we can blame Facebook in part for this, yeah. but it's not just the internet. What has happened in America to create such toxic divisions between political communities? Well, the answer to your question is, is in some ways highly complex and in some ways very simple. Complex in there. Well, focus on the simplicity, please, because we don't have enough time for complexity here. Well, what I was going to say is, you know, there is no one cause in this. And, and sometimes authors, academics, policymakers like to sort of say, it's really about gerrymandering. No, it's about the Internet. No, it's about, you know, the politicization of news media. It's about Western or Russian in, you know, influence in our elections. And the answer is that's all right. That's true. But what's more important is how all of those things at some point start to feed each other and increase the capacities of each other. And that's what leads to these, you know, 50, 60 year trajectories of increasing polarization, enmity and vilification of the other side. So we're on a bit of a runaway train. It's not caused by any one thing. It's caused by a constellation of things. You have bad actors, you have divisive people like Donald Trump that come in and play on divisions for political purposes. Um, and that contributes to it as well. You have Facebook and the like button and the other social media platforms that prey on outrage. That's the coin of the realm. And so the more provocative content gets becomes viral. All of those things are contributing to this runaway train that we're on. But getting rid of any of any one or two or three of them is insufficient. We have to understand how they operate together and understand the conditions under which such societies that are as divided as we are today in the past, what, what led them to change? What led them to really choose a different path? We have the potential today to move in that direction, um, but we have to understand the nature of the problem because it's not just getting this politician out of office or changing this uh, you know, gerrymandering rule that's insufficient to the problem. As I said, I, um, uh, I talked about earlier this guest essay in the Times today, what we did the last time we broke America, going back into history. He's the uh, curator of the Smithsonian, so he's um, uh, 
very accomplished historian. You begin your book with a note about a woman called Mary Parker Follett. Mm. Um, what can we learn from late 19th century figures like Follett about the way out, about overcoming toxic polarization? Because as, as you note, and as many others have noted, this has happened before in American history. And of course, unfortunately, it led to the Civil War yes. in the 19th century. Yeah, in Follett's time, which was the, the turn of the last century, uh, some of the most heated conflicts were really labor conflicts. It was unionization and violence that was taking place to fight unioniz unionization um, and then to fight back. So there was a lot of violence associated with our various industries um, and with the union movement. Um, and Follett was writing at that time. She was a brilliant American social worker. She was a visionary in terms of many of the, like management consulting and organizational behavioral theory. She was really one of the first people to speak about those things. So she was talking about conflict and talking about a way out of this destructive conflict at that time. And part of what she said is yes, you know, you have competitive goals, you have competition and you have bad actors and you have, you know, power struggles. That stuff is, is part of human groups. And we have the capacity to grow a different way of working together, of treating one another, of, of seeing one another. Um, and that is around cooperation, it is around respect. It is, and she said, you know, what, what she believed in is the power and the, the need to grow a, a sort of an alternative culture, right? That if we start to go down a rabbit hole such as we're in right now, where we're so addicted to outrage and triggered so easily, we really need to kind of regain a time when we had more respect for our neighbors and our friends who differ from us politically um, and, and, and other members of our country. There were decades when Americans actually had much more bipartisanship in Congress, much lower levels of disdain for the other side. The idea of Republicans and Democrat marrying as your children was fine. Today, people see that as a, you know a, a, an evil thing to consider. So we are in a, in a particularly bad time now. What she said at that time is that what helps us is to kind of reflect on and build on our more, what we call positive deviance, our more positive tendencies and capacities for caring for one another. There was another great piece in the Times this week about the power of talking to people about the weather for changing our cultural vitriol. Oh, I missed that. It sounds interesting, yeah. Well, yeah, what she was sort of arguing was just that, you know, talking to people about politics today oftentimes goes nowhere. Either you get in your own rabbit hole or, you, or it explodes. So she said, you know, the way out of this is probably the small conversations you have with people while you're walking your dog in the street or in the park. Um, where you chit-chat. I mean, uh, uh, geography is central here, um, Peter, isn't it? Because where I live in San Francisco, for example, there aren't any Republicans. There are barely any conservative Democrats. Um, there are other parts of the country where you can't find Democrats. So uh, how, how do we fix geography? How do we create a situation, for example, in a city like San Francisco or indeed the Upper West Side of Manhattan where people of different different political opinions can actually coexist. You go out of your door, you're not going to bump into any Republican 
Or yeah. if you do, they're going to be liberal Republicans. So we've been studying, you know, there are 3,030 counties in America, and we've been studying the top uh, 1% of the least politically polarized and the most compared to the most politically polarized. And what you find in these places where people are much more tolerant of differences across political divisions today is that you have mixed political marriages, right? You have something like 25 to 30% of marriages are actually Republicans and Democrats, which means their progeny, their children will tend to be either independents or will grow up more tolerant of one another. And they also have, you know, churches that bring people together across political denominations and they have workspaces that do the same. So most of the more tolerant uh, political places today have what we call cross-cutting structures. They just have spaces where people come together, meet, grow up together, their children grow up together, and that there's a humanizing factor to that that takes place. That is critical because you're right that not only has there been a, a, a physical sorting in America uh, of reds and blues between urban and rural areas, but re the Times also had a piece recently where they published in the major cities, you see, uh, segregation happening, political segregation happening just into little neighborhoods. So uh, Florida is a perfect example of this. Florida, if you look at a map of Florida, of red and blue, it's like the measles have broken out because you have all these strong pockets of red and then a couple of neighborhoods away, strong pockets of blue. And that, frankly, is the recipe for violence. When you yeah, and the New York Times doesn't sponsor this, by the way, and we, we've spoken too much about them, but I don't know how many Republicans read the New York Times. So, you, you know, you and I read it and many of our listeners or viewers. Uh, the model that you come up with in, in, in the book and in some of your other writing, uh, this is a piece from by Amanda Ripley, an excellent writer, actually, um, in The Atlantic, she, uh, the least politically prejudiced place in America, is Watertown, New York. What is it about Watertown, Peter, that offers a way out to our polarization, to our political toxicity? Well, that's that they are in this 1% of these counties uh, that are politically tolerant, and they have mixed political marriages, and they have spaces where people come together. But there are some other important differences. One of the things that's interesting about Watertown is that about 100 years ago, the local political folks decided to, in some ways, isolate themselves or insulate themselves from political division at the national level. So they really uh, restricted the influence that the party system, the two-party system, could have on their local politics. So a lot of their local politics are mixed Republicans and Democrats working together, sharing budgets, problem solving together. And they really try to keep the influence of national division out of local politics. So that was an important decision that happened, you know, decades ago. Um, but it, it's also how they live their lives. You know, there's a there's a story in that story by Amanda Ripley. There's a story of a, of a preacher who has Monday breakfasts. And these Monday breakfasts are for people who are red and blue. And he cooks it and it's a great breakfast and they come and they talk politics. Yeah, it's a home-cooked, you note in the book, I think it's a home-cooked breakfast. That's what he says. And he's very proud of the, the, the food. But he's also proud of the fact that what happens is that people keep coming back for the food and the gathering and the conversation. But he said, you know, because this isn't a one-time encounter, 
this is an ongoing thing, we tend to talk about issues long enough until we come to a place where we realize what we don't understand. He said, and that's when people start to learn and open up because they recognize that immigration, for example, is an extremely complex set of issues that are interrelated. It's not about a wall or no wall, right? It's, it is a highly nuanced set of policy decisions. And the more you talk about it, even to inform people, the more you realize that there are all kinds of dilemmas around those decisions. That kind of experience in an ongoing way, you know, takes time. It's not something that you can do in, a, in an hour encounter with somebody from the other side. That's, I think, a takeaway is these places are places where people live together across these directions. Right. Their stories, what you call stories of hope. And your book is, is laced with that. You, you have this nice visualization of the, the chapters in the book. Very briefly, Peter, um, what other techniques are there for the way out? You, you have, again, a visual for the new rules for the way out. Yeah. Very briefly, go over one or two of these. Yeah, so what I've tried to do in this book, I sat down and tried to map out everything I wanted to say, and then I ultimately said, okay, I can only talk about five things. So I identify five principles from research on deeply divided societies and the kinds of actions that you and I can take in our life, or our family, or our communities that can help us navigate out and make a difference. Um, and, and those principles scale. It means it's true for me and how I... Uh, uh, handle myself in public, but it's also true for, for group dynamics and for communities. Well, here, here's one idea. And this is a, for me, for my field, I'm a peacemaker, peace builder, mediator by training. Um, you and, teach what in the site department at Columbia? Yeah, I run two research centers at Columbia, one at the Earth Institute, one in psychology on peace and conflict. Um, and but you're not you're not a leftist peace name, right? I hope anyway. <laughs> I am I am a uh, I am a both and. If you read the foreword to my book, it explains to you where I came from, which is humble roots in rural America, um, where I still have connections to people. Yeah, I did um, read that, and, and it was interesting. I actually forgot to to paste some of the words from that into the the. Um, the graphics for this show. But are you yourself, if not an anachronism, certainly someone who no longer stands for America? You often hear stories, well, I was from this mixed community. I grew up in poverty. I made it. You've made it, certainly to the Upper West Side and as a professor at Columbia. But you're not really representative anymore. You were, but there are no young Peter Coleman's, are there? Oh, I think there are. I think there are. I mean, again, my 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 heart is still with those people. It's why I wrote this book because we so easily assume the worst, assume the most extreme attitude of the other side, and that is a problem. And oftentimes, it is when you spend enough time, whether it's growing up with them or working with them today with people across the divide. When you spend enough time with them, you realize that you can't essentialize, you know, half this country. That's just a, a ridiculous and absurd thing to do, that there's much more nuance in every human being. And recognizing that is, the, you know, is a place to start. Um, what I was going to say is that as a mediator, uh, we're trained to bring people together who have, together who have differences, sit at a table and talk to each other and have them talk it out. 
And most of the time, for most types of conflicts, that's fine. But when you're in a context of toxic polarization, where anything the other says about Colin Kaepernick or the wall or Obamacare triggers in you a reaction, an emotional reaction, then simply sitting at a table and trying to talk sometimes is extremely difficult to get started, let alone to stick at. So what, one of the things I recommend is movement. One of the things we've learned from, uh, from the neuro, neuroscientific study of conflict is that one of the benefits to two people who disagree getting up and physically moving together Right. Your, that's your chapter eight. Move, acti activate novel pathways and rhythms. Because what tends to happen over time is we watch the news and we're on the internet, we per perseverate about them and how we're victims of their insanity. It becomes really embodied. The conflict becomes embodied in our neurological structures. So we can't process information that contradicts it. We only process information that supports that conflict. One of the things that helps us mitigate that is to shake it off, is to get up and physically move. And if you move, simply moving and doing things is one way to loosen that up. Uh, I'm not serious, of course, but one way of moving is moving overseas, Peter. Um, the book is about America, but you have yeah. um, examples of other countries, uh, Costa Rica, yeah. uh, New Zealand. Yeah. Norway. And it's always the Costa Ricas, the Norways, the New Zealands that come up in books like this. If only we could be more like them. You don't bring up Denmark, but you could have. Can America really become another Costa Rica, another Norway, another New Zealand? Very different countries, much richer, um, much, much more modern, much more dynamic, and much less mired in the lies of the past. Well, absolutely, America can take that choice. I mean, look at all these countries came out of difficult times. Costa Rica in 1948 came out of a miserable, bloody civil war, and, it, and thousands of people had been killed. And it was at that point that the leadership who had been involved as a, a rebel insurgent, the leadership and the community decided to take a different path, to move in a different direction. Mauritius, Botswana, these are highly peaceful places in Africa, which is oftentimes, you know, other nations are dangerous nations at the same time. Mauritius is a great example because Mauritius has a history of slavery, has a history of indentured servitude, has inequality, has many of the conditions that this country has. And yet there's an intentionality that they have about peace. They are very proud of the fact that this is a highly multicultural nation a lot of Hindus, a lot of Muslims, a lot of Christians. But nevertheless, there are places that are very tolerant of other groups that pride themselves on that tolerance and, that, and where there are taboos against, for example, highly divisive media and taboos against, for example, proselytizing one's religion in order to recruit members away from other communities. So there are certain norms that they've intentionally adopted and maintained which allows them to still be, to today, be the, the most peaceful nation in the continent of Africa. So there, there are places all over the world that we can learn from. This is one of the projects I have. There's a, there's a website called the Sustaining Peace Project website at Columbia. This is a group of folks that I work with. I work in long-term difficult conflicts, and I work in long-term, stable, resilient, peaceful societies. 
Um, and there's tons that we can learn from those. Yeah, one of, one of the countries we might learn from is Ireland. You talk about the abortion dialogues in Greater Boston, of course. Yeah. The reason why abortion is such a controversial subject in Boston is because of its large Catholic community, particularly of, of, of Irish immigrants. There's yeah. another way of dealing with this stuff, which you don't talk about as much in the book, which is political reform. Yeah. Uh, Ireland has been the, um, the, the country of Ireland has been the, the, the stage for a really interesting citizen assembly experiment reforming politics through lottery so that citizens are invited to discuss controversial issues. They were very successful with abortion. I, I do another show called How to Fix Democracy. I actually went to Ireland to interview some of these people. One of the people who won or lost the lottery to be on the Citizen Assembly said to me that, um, you know, when they began, you had these radical divisions and people who were either for or against abortion. But after they began talking to one another, those began to break down. Perhaps the consequences of your uh, interfaith abortion dialogues in Boston and the citizen assemblies are similar, but maybe the problem with America is the political architecture is just so archaic and that we need radical political reform. Citizen assemblies, for example, is 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 a very active, uh, very innovative in in North Europe, uh, Northwest Europe, Belgium, Germany, the UK, Canada, but not in America. So my question is, do we need more radical political reform on top of some of the sort of interfaith dialogue that you talk about? Absolutely, absolutely. But I I, I disagree that it's not happening here. It is happening here. For example. There is a there's a mechanism in Congress called the Select com Committees, and this is these are mechanisms when Congress starts to fail or falter, they call a temporary Select Committee. And a year and a half ago, they called a Select Committee for the Modernization of Congress in order to deal with its dysfunction and its and its polarization. And that is a committee chaired by a Republican and a Democrat with six six of each on the on the committee. They uh, share a budget, they work in consensus decision-making, and they've been holding a series of public hearings, as well as made a series of 98 recommendations to the House leadership about what kinds of structures need to be changed in Congress to bring down the temperature of Congress and allow it to be more functional to get, uh, again, in terms of a problem-solving body. And they've been pretty successful. Again, it's only a year and a half into this, but many of their proposition or their proposals have been endorsed. And they're not brain science. It's, for example, the fact that most co conversations that happen with Congress people are in front of cameras, which means that the vast majority of time, Congress people are lobbying their base back home in their comments, not talking to their colleagues to solve problems. So one of the recommendations was create opportunities for, for you know, senators and Congress people to be able to gather and work together away from cameras? Or how do you grow a different climate in Congress? You recognize that freshmen that come in can change the dynamics. So instead of what they used to do, which is bring co freshman Congress people in and put one on a, you know, half on a blue bus and half on a red bus, and then have them drive in different directions and start to strategize about the war, what they do instead is say, don't 
start like that, begin with a time where they get to know each other and mingle and sit in awe of the responsibilities that they've been given and the privileges that they've been given and uh, allow them to establish some kind of relationship and rapport before you move them into politically political maneuvers. These are structural changes that are happening just in the micro world of Congress, but they can have significant repercussions even with the political incentive structure as it is. They're mobilizing more and more to take on those structures, and that's what we need to see happen. So there may be a way out, at least according to Peter T. Coleman, the way out, how to overcome uh, toxic polarization. Uh, Peter, these kinds of books often end with hope. The, the, the writers will acknowledge a deep problem, a problem that seems insoluble, and then say, well, we do have inspiration. You end with quotes from Nelson Mandela and John Lewis, both great men, I guess, uh, certainly from the left, they're heroes of mine, but I'm not sure they're heroes of everyone. Do we need, uh, and, and these kind of books always, uh, the, the, the one person who always shows up at the end of these kind of books is Martin Luther King and his thing of justice, whatever it is, the arc of justice, which has become so boring. Um, uh, do we need better role models? Do we need non-denominational role models that won't piss off the other side? Uh, you know, books that end with Mandela and Lewis are likely to to make conservatives indifferent. What, 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 who, do we need to get beyond the Mandelas and the Lewises of the world? Well, I, I understand your point. Your point is the, 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 the power of symbolism. But I ask you to pay close attention to the words of both those men. Good. Well, perhaps you might remind us of those words. Well, the words that particularly John Lewis talked about was that, you know, this, this generation has the potential to move beyond the divis divisiveness of our society and to really create a new society. And that's, again, why I wrote this book. It's what the emphasis of this book is on, which is to encourage uh, th those of us in the, in the exhausted middle majority to re-engage in our communities, to re-engage in our politics. You don't have to run for office, but doing so sufficiently that you can, again, grow- There's that old joke, Peter, the, uh, the from, uh, I brought this up before and I got her first name wrong, uh, uh, the, the governor of Texas, Richards, um, who said the only dead thing, uh, the only thing in the middle of the road in, in Texas are uh, dead rodents. Uh, you call yourself, in the middle of the road. You're not. You're probably on the left. I am too. Do we need to get beyond this idea of being in the middle if indeed we are to find a way out to our polarization? No one's really in the middle, are they? Except no, I, uh, dead skunks in Texas on the roads. Well, no, I think that's true. I mean, again, they're even independents lean left or right, right? Most independents are a combination of both. Yeah. I mean, again, what is what does being a moderate mean? Or uh, you know, there are uh, you know, so uninformed moderates that become disengaged because they're lazy. But then there are people that are fed up with the vitriol and the nonsense, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. What I'm saying is that we need to mobilize those people and show them how to engage, where to engage, with whom to engage in ways that are fulfilling and constructive. If you go to that breakfast in Watertown, New York, every Monday. It enlivens in you a feeling of hope and possibility 
especially because of the differences that you're having, not, because, not, not in lieu of them or despite of them, but in the context of making sense with people who differ from you, we push our insights further to higher levels. That, there's a power in that that we need to use to help energize, re-energize this exhausted middle majority. Look, I, I, am, I tend towards progressive on some issues, I may be more conservative. I go back and forth depending on the context and the issue. And that's where most people are. So to categorize you as one or the other, I think is always problematic. Unless you're on an extreme and you're a true believer and you don't budge, then I'm fine categorizing you. Well, there may be a way out. Uh, at least there is, according to Peter Coleman, how to overcome toxic polarization. It's a very serious book. It's, it's very detailed. And he does uh, lay out a series of new rules for the way out. It's a good, important book about perhaps our most serious problem. Congratulations then, Peter, on the book. Uh, in these times, these divisive, toxic times, what else should people be reading, Peter? Well, th again, thank you for the for the format, for the for the platform to be able to share. There are several books that I would recommend. One is an older book that's out of print, but I would recommend it highly called The Logic of Failure. This is by a German psychologist. It's it's still available. And it is about the unintended consequences when we, we make decisions even well-intentioned decisions, the unintended consequences of our action, that's good for every, that every policymaker should read that. This is a newer book, The Constitution of Knowledge. Yeah, he's been on the, uh, Jonathan Ralph, he's, and it, actually he's an example, I think, of someone in the middle, a conservative who's also a um, very outspoken critic of Trump and, and the new Republican Party. Yeah, it's a good book. That's true. And and John, John Hi, Jonathan Haidt, who yeah. is self-righteous, the, the righteous mind, yeah. Jonathan, too, is a, a more liberal in his politics, but also very critical of the left and the trappings. Yeah, I, I think we need to get Haidt on the show. He's one of the sort of pioneers of this uh, attempt to, to break down the toxicity. And, and Peter, I think you are too. I want to congratulate you again on the book and on your commitment to fixing uh, what's gone wrong, the toxicity in America, figuring out a, a way out to this problem. Congratulations on that, on your book, on your teaching, and on your other writing. And I hope, Peter, you'll come back on the show in the not-too-distant future to talk more about this, because we could talk for hours about it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed our conversation.